Zechariah 6, 1 to 8, on the eighth vision, the eighth and last vision of Zechariah. Verse 1, Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Amen. The prophet now sees a vision which has similarities to the first vision in chapter 1 and even similarities to other parts of Scripture, such as the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and 11, and the book of Revelation, chapter 6. The prophet in this final vision essentially has a word of encouragement to the people that God is the conqueror for them and his angelic armies are watching after them so that they can have confidence and faith in the plan of God and purpose of God for them. That's essentially the message here because these angels will accomplish the conquest of the kingdom that destroyed Judah and now God is going to appease his wrath and conquer that kingdom so that it is destroyed. There are two main ways to take this passage. One is the typical and traditional one to say that the four horses represent four kingdoms. Four horses represent four kingdoms. The first kingdom would be the Babylonians. The second would be the Medes and the Persians. The third would be the Greek Empire. And the fourth, the Roman Empire. That's an often, uh, or historically, it's the most often uh, interpretation that's presented. Um, however, if we're going to take these horses that way, it presents one difficulty in, in the sense that it says in verse uh, 5, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. Now, if we are to take verse 5 literally, that the spirits or the angels of heaven stand before the Lord and receive their commission from him to do whatever God wills for them to do, then it's hard to think that the, the kingdoms themselves are those spirits. Perhaps it could be, if it is the kingdoms, it would be the angels, the major angels who rule over them. Because in the book of Daniel, in chapter 12, for example, it does explain, chapters 10 and 12, that 
there is a prince or an angelic leader of the foreign nations, of different foreign nations, and there is even one for Israel who is called Michael. Michael the archangel is that chief angel for Israel. So it could be in that way that we take verse 5. Or we might take verses 1 to 8 in a general sense, and that is that the horses in their colors, they represent different aspects of God's purposes. Not necessarily different kingdoms, but different aspects of God's purposes. Because with that first view, it becomes hard to identify red with Babylon, uh, black with Persia, white with Greek, uh, Greece, and then uh, dappled horses with Rome. Though there are ways that the interpreters take them that way, it's, it's harder to make them fit those categories, colors with the kingdoms. But if we take the colors more in a spiritual way, then that interpretation is also possible. And that's the way we will lean in our study with this passage. So, beginning at verse 1. Finally, he again lifts his eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. Likely, again, he had his head down. He was contemplating, pondering, meditating upon what he had just seen. And God uh, takes him out of the previous vision to present a new vision to him. So in this new vision, he sees four chariots coming between the two mountains. Four chariots between two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. Well, the four chariots, we see later four spirits in verse 5. And so they are corresponding to the horses and the spirits. The four chariots, four horses, and four spirits. Then the mountains, why the the mountains, why two mountains, and why bronze mountains? In the book of 1 Kings, when Solomon built a temple, 1 Kings 7, 13 to 22, he built two pillars, and he gave them names. Now, if these pillars are the backdrop, the background of these two mountains, then we might understand why he saw two mountains and then bronze mountains. 7.13 Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. And he fashioned the two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured the circumference of both. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals which were on the top of the pillars seven for the one capital, and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars, and two rows around on the one network to cover the capitals which were on the top of the pomegranates. And so he did 
for the other capital. And the capitals which are on the top of the pillars in the porch were of lily designed four cubits. And there were capitals also on the two pillars, close to the rounded projection which was beside the network. And the pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus, he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Yaqin. And he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. And on the top of the pillars was lily design. So the work of the pillars was finished. Now, this would be in the likely in the courtyard area of the temple as they are entering before they come to the holy place. And so in verse 21, the two names of the pillars, you may have a footnote which say that the first one is called He Shall Establish, and the second one, In It Is Strength. He Shall Establish, In It Is Strength. The pillars of bronze were indicative of the power and providence of God. The power and providence of God as they entered the temple. And bronze being a a strong metal and used in warfare, this is likely indicative of the fact that the powerful and providential king of kings dwells there. So if we have these two mountains, mountains being bigger than pillars, it's based on that analogy that Zechariah is encouraged that God has his chariots coming from before him, proceeding from him, just as it says in verse 5, these are the four spirits of heaven, of heaven going forth after, standing before the Lord of all the earth. And So if the pillars were a part of the entry to get into the holy place and then the most holy place, well, who was dwelling in the most holy place? It was God in the holy of holies, the most holy place. He dwelt there, symbolically he dwelt there, and therefore their power, their providence, their king of kings owned that temple and and had the power to save them, had the power to deliver them from their sins and punishment. If that's the analogy, then we pick it up at Zechariah 6.2. With the first chariot were red horses. The first chariot had red horses. With the one interpretation, that would mean the Babylonians. The Babylonians, and if it's red, perhaps because of their uh, bloodshed. But if we take uh, an interpretation, a similar interpretation, to Revelation chapter 6, we have in this scripture, Revelation 6, an interpretation of red horses. Now, this would also assume that John intended or or Zechariah intended the same thing as John intended. That may or may not be true. But if we just look at the concept of red horses, what does John say red horses signifies, at least to him, and therefore may also apply to Zechariah? Revelation 6, 3 and 4. And he broke the second seal. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second 
living creature, saying, Come. And another, A red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. This would, the red would signify war and bloodshed. Widespread war and bloodshed. Red horse. Keep our place in both Zechariah 6 and Revelation 6. Then in Zechariah 6, 2, he says, with the second chariot, black horses. What does black signify, at least to the Apostle John and perhaps also to Zechariah? The black horse is Revelation 6, 5, and 6. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. This showing how expensive it was to buy these products is indicative of a famine. So black signifies a famine. Then in Zechariah 6, verse 3, it says, With the third chariot, white horses. Third chariot, white horses. What does white signify? Revelation chapter 6, 1 and 2. 1 and 2. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The conqueror rides a white horse. So he has victory, complete victory over his enemies, which actually is also Christ. Christ in his return is described in Revelation 19, 11 to 21. 19, 11 to 21. And in 19, 14, it says this of him and his armies. 19, 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. They were following him on white horses. These angels who are accompanying Christ when he returns. And even Christ himself, in verse 11, rides a white horse. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. White, the color of conquest, victory. And then finally we have the fourth chariot, and it had strong dappled horses. Dappled, spotted horses, and often the spotted horses have um, gray, gray mixed with white spots like that. So the dappled horses are probably grayish horses with spots. 
And do we have gray? We have in Revelation 6, 7, and 8. Revelation 6, 7. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. This ashen horse and ashes often also great, right? So this ashen horse is called death and he has the power to conquer. However, by sword, famine, pestilence and the wild beasts of the earth. So a symbol of death. If we take it that way, remember, if we don't take it in that way, according to Revelation 6, then the kingdoms are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So let's proceed with the comparison to Revelation 6. But applied to Zechariah's immediate concern. Verse 4. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. The four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. Four spirits. Why four spirits? Likely to signify the four directions of the compass because north and south are mentioned in verse 6. And he is, the Lord is, the Lord of all the earth. And one common way throughout history, biblically and extra-biblically, to refer to the world is north, south, east, and west. If we're talking about the, the globe and um, directions. We're talking in that way. In that way, also, God is most likely signifying that's why he has four spirits. We also notice that they are of heaven. They come from heaven. And this is probably um, the case in verse 1, when it's four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. If the two mountains represent, and behind the mountains represent the presence of God, then verse 5 says, four spirits of heaven, and they were standing before the Lord of all the earth. And this is also the title of the Lord in Zechariah 4.14. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. This Lord of the whole earth is the one who's got control of the whole earth. This is a phrase that we find in Joshua 3, 11 and 13. Joshua 3, 11 and 13. And also we'll look at Joshua 4, 24. In Joshua chapters 3 and 4, Joshua is leading the people to cross the Jordan River. But they have a problem. It's a river. 
And so they need dry land, dry ground to cross it. And that's when God causes the waters to stop so that they are able to cross on dry ground, just like he did the Red Sea. Well, in preparation for this and in the aftermath of it, what is God called? Remember, they were in Egypt, they were in the wilderness, and now they are on the edge of the land of Canaan. Correct? What is God called who has power to overcome? 3.11 Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe, and it shall come about. When the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. Afterward, when it was accomplished, look at what it says in Joshua 4. Joshua 4. We'll start at 4. 19, 419 to 24. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. That, this is expressing the purpose, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. When God is called the Lord of all the earth, he intends for all the peoples of the earth to know he is mighty and that we should fear him and fear him forever. Well, God's mighty power is also explained here in Zechariah 6 because he's going to conquer the whole earth since he is the Lord of the whole earth. God sending forth angels to accomplish his will is a concept that is throughout the Bible. In Hebrews 1.14, it describes angels thusly. It says, Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 1.14. Even Christ said in Matthew 26.53, can I not ask the Father, uh, or do I not have at my disposal from the Father 12 legions of angels? Jesus said that. He could call on them immediately to come and help. In 2 Kings 6, 2 Kings 6, when Elisha and his attendant were being surrounded, they were helpless. But Elisha was unafraid because he knew God was helping him. And this is described in 2 Kings 6, 15 
to 19. 615 to 19. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. Now, these enemies of Israel, the the Arameans, they wanted to destroy them, but God prevented it by his angels and the blindness, the, the curse of blindness that Elisha prayed to come upon them. Now, we go further to um, Zechariah 6. Zechariah 6. 6, verse 6. With one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. In verse 6, it seems we can make all four fit. And here's what we see. With one of which, with one of which what? With one of which of the spirits of verse 5. And that one must be the one who has the red horses the first chariot with the red horses. So the black horses go forth with the red horses to the north country. And in the north is where usually the enemies come. They usually come from the north to invade. Not from the east, because there's a desert and a river. Uh, Not from the west, because that's the Mediterranean Sea. If they, unless they come by ship. But if they're coming by land, then it's usually from the north or the south, either from the north or from the south. However, their most vicious enemies usually came from the north. Then we have what? The red, the black, and the white horses all going to the north to conquer to completely defeat the enemy. And then the dappled ones go forth to the south country to make sure that there's no one who can harm Israel again. In the north, they are completely conquered. Red, like we said, red for bloodshed. Um, Black for famine and then white for conquest. That God is able to inflict on them whatever they inflicted on Israel. 
And the dappled horses, they go to the south country, and they have this all-encompassing power. Remember, they were called strong dappled horses, verse 3. Strong dappled horses. So their strength is enough strength to handle whatever enemies are there in the south. Typically in history, this would be the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, all coming from the north. It's representative of the fact that God is able to conquer all of Israel's enemies. And in the south, it was usually Egypt. Usually Egypt of any country. So the strong ones... When uh, the three groups or the three horses went to the north and then the other one went to the south. The other uh, dappled ones went to the south. Then verse 7. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Now three times we're told that they patrolled the earth in one way or another. And when it says the strong ones, it's likely it's a reference to all of them. All of them, especially the four spirits of heaven, verse 5. Not just the dappled horses, but all of them, because the spirits of God, the angels of God, they are on patrol. They do um, scout the earth, they do spy, they do have their mission throughout the whole earth. So on the one hand, um, the three occurrences of this patrolling, on the one hand, they are eager to patrol so that when they receive the commission of God, they have enthusiasm, eagerness to do the will of God. The angels do His will just like that. They don't hem and haw. They don't complain. They don't say, well, wait a minute. They don't say, um, I just bought a piece of land. I just married a wife. They don't make excuses. They don't say, let me first go bury my father. They don't put their hand to the plow and look back and are unfit for the kingdom of God. They don't do these things that men do. They are eager to obey God and to patrol the earth. And then 7 says, they're eager to do it, and God says, go patrol the earth. God gives them the command, go patrol the earth. And verse 7 concludes, their eagerness came to fruition in obedience, so they patrol the earth. They're eager to do, to know and do the will of God, God tells them what to do, and then they do it. We said God says it. The New American Standard Bible makes it easy for us that God is speaking because of the capital H of He, and He said, verse 7, which is repeated in verse 8, Then He cried out to me, and in verse 8 it says, My wrath, capital M for my wrath that God is the speaker. But let's go back a little bit and see why they do so. Well, 
in verse 8, it says, have appeased my wrath. That my wrath could not be anyone else but God, right? So that's why they go back in verse 8 and say, he cried out. And then in 7 and said, and say, and he said, capital H, he said. But we have to even go back further than that. Look at verse 5. And the angel answered and said to me. So who's speaking? The angel is speaking, right? And this angel continues to speak. He concludes in verse 7, and then he starts again, and he said. But who is this angel? Let's go to verse 4. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, Who are these, my Lord? What should we do now at this point? We should take the angel of verses 4 and 5 to be the angel of the Lord. And this will take us full circle back to chapter 1, the interpretive angel, the angel who assists him, who dialogues with him. Who is this angel? Let's go back to chapter 1. 1, 12, 1, 12 to 14. 112. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? Who is praying? The angel of the Lord to the Lord right? Lord of hosts. He is praying and asking this question. Verse 13, and the Lord answered the angel. Answered the angel. So that is the question in 12. The answer is in 13 and following. And there, and the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. You see the connection in chapter 1? It seems, therefore, that we should consistently take the, this interpretive angel to be the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord is Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ. Speaking to Zechariah the prophet. All right, now we've come to our final verse. Verse 8. 6, 8. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Those spirits with the chariots and horses, red, black, and white, they have accomplished the wrath of God. They have punished the enemies of God by appeasing His wrath. Because they were unrepentant sinners, God's wrath was inflicted on them. And His wrath was said to be appeased. To be appeased. That means 
satisfied, satisfied, they satisfied the wrath of God by punishing the wicked. In 115 of Zechariah, 115 it says, But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. God was very angry with the nations who conquered Israel. The prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel also speaks of God's wrath being appeased. Ezekiel 5. Ezekiel 5, 13. Five thirteen to 17. Ezekiel 5, 13. Thus my anger will be spent, and I will satisfy my wrath on them, and I shall be appeased. Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and a reproach among the nations which surround you in the sight of all who pass by. So it will be a reproach, a reviling, a warning, and an object of horror to the nations who surround you. When I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath, and raging rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, which were for the destruction of those whom I shall send to destroy you, then I shall also intensify the famine upon you and break the staff of bread. Moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague and bloodshed also will pass through you, and I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken." This word in Ezekiel 5 is against Judah. They had unrepentant sin. Zechariah lives decades after Ezekiel, and now Zechariah is comforted in knowing that though God's wrath was on unrepentant Judah, God's wrath is now turned to the unrepentant nations. This is what God does. He punishes all. There is no partiality with him. Whoever has sinned will die. The soul who sins will die. And even nations who sin, they will be destroyed. This is the final oracle, or final vision, we should say, final vision that Zechariah saw. Now, if this is true, that God's wrath is finally appeased against the nations, and even Judah, Then, what about redemption? Well, that's what we have in verses 9 to 15, which we will study next time. And this redemption is going to be focused, it's going to be centered on the branch, mentioned in verses 12 and 13. The branch is the source of redemption. The vindication of God's people in verses 1 to 8, and their redemption in verses 9 to 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.